Hey Sylvia, it's April 28th, Tuesday, going on about 5.30 here in Istanbul, and I'm sitting in my living room watching the sun go down, kind of, I can't actually see the sun from my apartment, but you know, I got some nice rays coming in, but they are decreasing by the minute, so evening is upon us, which means Tila and I will head out for a walk soon. I want to thank you for your letter, of course, which I listened to several times, and I have to say it really had this lovely calming effect on me. Um, listening to it, I, 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 I was thinking about my own letters and how I, I think I, don't, <laughs> I never sound smooth enough and I'm always so stilted and I feel kind of... It seems like I'm... I would describe them as frantic, and then I listen to them, and it's just all this fillers and kind of me tripping over myself. So I think maybe it's, you know, my mouth trying to keep up with my mind, and it's, it, it just doesn't work, and I'm constantly tripping. So, yeah, um, I should probably do some more drafting before I send my letters out to you. Uh, your letter was just, yeah, beautiful, so smooth, and yeah. Yeah, just just very, very beautiful. Thank you for that. So, yeah, I'm thinking we should maybe do more more letters, do, do letters more frequently, I should say, because I, you know, all these topics just build up, and, and then that's one reason I feel like I'm kind of racing through is because af- I know I won't get to everything. So either I need to be pickier or we need to do more letters. You asked about the furniture I brought back from home. Uh, I'll send you some photos. You can see it's quite a bit. I mean, it's a whole bedroom set and which, yeah, so everything in my bedroom almost. And then, you know, an old chest and a telephone stand and what they call a dry sink. I don't know if you ever heard of a dry sink, but I didn't know what it was, but that's what the folks back home told me it was, so... Yeah, and all you know, and a desk, the desk I work from at home, all that's from 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 my dad's, which was at my grandma's, and I think as as far as I know, most of it was my great great aunt B B in Adelaide's who left everything to my grandma. So yeah, when my dad died in two thousand ten, he he died just when I was getting my own place, and so I hadn't bought any furniture, and then I went back, and there was all this furniture, and nobody else wanted it, and I'm quite attached to it I don't know how healthy that is but you know I I thought well I actually thought there's no way I can afford to bring this stuff back but a cousin of mine um, bless her did some research and actually got a really decent price and so I rented half a container and shipped all this stuff over and before shipping it you know I just stuffed the drawers with all sorts of sheets and towels and kitchen utensils and and dishes and everything all photos of course and um and I still use all that you know um just afghans and quilts and yeah so it's a lot of stuff from home here uh it's interesting because my grandma in particular never really threw stuff out and I mean, she wasn't a hoarder per se, but, you know, you use, you use stuff until it's done. So, you know, I have all these things that actually 
I even remember from when I was pretty young and stuff. Um, just because you don't, you know, you don't throw stuff out. You, you should be frugal, and that's that's a topic that's come up quite frequently with me recently. I've been telling this story to everyone, just uh, because of all the people freaking out over toilet paper, which is uh, and it seems to be an international phenomenon. It's also true here, but you know the whole the whole thing just reminded me of my grandma who was pretty strict and she had her rules and some were more enforceable than others but one one thing I remember her telling me which was really ingrained and it's a little TMI and um I you know I can't say I always stuck to it but it was this idea that you know three sheets of toilet paper was enough that you really didn't need more than three sheets to wipe your ass if you were using more than you're being wasteful and uh yeah so that kind of tells you a little bit uh, about the degree <laughs> of of the frugality where I where I grew up, so yeah, it's uh it's cool to it's cool to live with all this stuff though. I'm really glad I could bring it over. You talked a little bit about uh, self love and this idea of shedding guilt and shame, and I think it's interesting. You said you you didn't think your parents necessarily really instilled you with this self-love and I wonder if it's kind of a generational thing I mean obviously we're talking across cultures too but um you know it's it's not it's not like I think my parents or people who raised me in any way you know instilled this self-loathing in me it was more just like this blank space um so it's you know neither here nor there which brings me to this i this this idea of also of guilt and shame and um i think yeah i've i've had a lot of that too and i'm not sure how much of it i've been able to shed on the surface you're able to shed it but you know it goes down pretty deep so it's hard to hard to tell it can kind of, sometimes i try and observe myself and i i think i see reflections of it in 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 yeah quite a number of my actions really but I think obviously shame is obvi- you know very obviously something very negative. Um, I mean maybe there you know there are obviously some things that people should be ashamed of. Uh, but you know the things that we're talking about here are probably not deserving of that. But I also have this issue with pride. So I'm just wondering, you know what what is the space between shame and pride? Is it humility? What is it? Um, because pride for me has always been so kind of attached to hubris, which I definitely think of as a vice. And so, yeah, I've always, I've always had an issue with pride for that reason. And that includes kind of this whole idea of gay pride, even, it even makes me feel uneasy. Uh, but I think there are a few reasons for that. And one is the idea that Pride is something you should feel about something you are solely responsible for. And since that is basically impossible, pride should be impossible. So that's a very maybe too personal definition of pride in a way. But, you know, all of our actions, everything about us, everything about what we do is is so contextual that 
I, I don't see how anyone can take full credit for anything, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, this whole thing, on the, on the one hand, I, I sometimes wonder if this my criticism I have of, of pride, or maybe I shouldn't say criticism, but my hesitancy to feel pride or want to feel any kind of pride is also just a, a veiled sense of shame. Um, that That is possible, I guess, right? So, I don't know, but I still don't like it. Um, and, yeah, I, and I think about these, these types of things quite a bit. Um, and I think, I wonder how much that has to do with my upbringing. And <clears throat> I, I'd say religious upbringing when I was doing a, another draft of this letter. I said religious upbringing. I thought about it, and I mean, it's not like I was brought up particularly strictly religious we just went to church on Sundays and you know at my grandma's and we lived across the street from the Methodist church so there'd be sometimes weekday activities and stuff and so we're very involved and and all that but it wasn't I don't know it didn't feel like a strict indoctrination it was more something that came from me that that I spent a lot of time reading the bible and I was kind of obsessed with it at one point, I wanted to be a missionary and all that. So, yeah, it's. I would just want to make it clear that that's mostly on me. <laughs> that it wasn't wasn't something that was pounded into my head from outside. But at the same time, I now identify as agnostic, and I think the only, you know the reason I don't identify as an atheist is just because. Of all the hubris I've seen in atheism, which is not true of all atheists, to be sure, they're, you know, some of my best friends are atheists. Um, <laughs> so I, I I hesitate to make such a blanket statement. But there is something about it in so many people that I don't know. And I think I like doubt. Um, gray areas and uncertainty, um, you know, f- f- fuzzy lines that's 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 kind of what I yeah where I thrive in a way so you know being agnostic makes sense for me in that regard but over the weekend I was rereading Flannery O'Connor's The Prayer Journal and came across this bit which I'd forgotten about and I was already planning on discussing this with you and then I came across this and I said oh how wonderfully this is put so I just want to read it to you it's very short No one can be an atheist who does not know all things. Only God is an atheist. The devil is the greatest believer, and he has his reasons. So yeah, I just leave that right there. You talked quite a bit about uh, Paradise Rot in your letter, which I really appreciated. Um, I need to extend thanks myself to my friend Kate McGuire, uh, a colleague of ours actually who works at QuirkBooks, and lent me her copy of Paradise Rot in Frankfurt at the Frankfurt Book Fair last year. And I was supposed to return it in London, but lo and behold, there was no London Book Fair, so I still have the book. I was thinking about how, how I would describe this book in one word. And the word that comes to mind is icky. 
it's just a very icky book, right? And I don't say that in a critical way. I like the idea that it feels icky. And I feel like it's actually very, you know, it is about young people. And I think it very cleverly conveys this ickiness that I at least also attach to adolescence and young adulthood. Um, in the case of the novel, I mean, you put these two words together, paradise rot, right? What does even that mean, this juxtaposition? I think, you know, the whole, the apples and the rotting apples and whatnot in the novel are, are, are kind of obvious symbols in a way. But the whole atmosphere of the novel is so much about living and rotting and kind of how these two things are intertwined. And I really appreciated that. Um, I think it has this kind of maybe even philosophical aspect to it in that regard. But, you know, this whole, yeah, the 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 whole idea of what's alive as well and what's not alive. I mean, kind of everything in the novel was alive and rotting at once, which is pretty much true of everything, right? And it's something we, we tend to focus on one part of that and not the other. So it was quite disturbing to have so much mold and, you know, <laughs> and rot and peeing and kind of these aspects of existence that we prefer to kind of side-eye, right? I was also then thinking, you know, I told you my last letter, I wanted to look at The True Deceiver a little bit again. I don't think you've, you, yeah, you haven't had a chance to read it. I hope you do someday, but yeah, it's to, it's, so it's Toby Jansen's novel. And just, I like putting these two novels side by side. I wasn't sure how, what kind of connections I might be able to, to make, but I actually think, you know, deceit is something that also runs through Paradise Rot to a certain degree because there's so much unreliability. Everybody is so unreliable. And <laughs> this is also true of the... Well, the true deceiver... Well, the thing is, is a questioning of what it, what even these concepts really mean, right? I mean, who's deceiving who if everybody's deceiving themselves? And... Yeah, and the true deceiver, it's two, these two characters who can be kind of straightforwardly read originally as good and bad, right? As kind of sweet and sour. But as time goes on and they interact and they start to affect each other, they start to question their own motives and also um, uh, resent the questioning of their motives at the same time and their behavior. And yeah, anyways... Um, I would say it ends on a darker note than than uh, a, rather than a lighter note, but yeah, I think in Paradise Rot too, you know, you can't rely on anything. You can't even rely on a on a piece of fruit. Everything everything's in route to mold and rot, and nothing is static, and therefore nothing is true, and everything is deceit. One might say. Now that I've given that very dark description, I'm sure everybody wants to run out and read these novels now, right? Well, you should. I mean, if you share taste like mine, you, then uh, 
then, uh, which clearly you do. So, you know, I'm glad that we could share these with each other. It's always great. It's always wonderful to share to share book recommendations and, and read books with friends and find that find something in them together. You know, one of you finds something the other one didn't see and, and whatnot. You you also mentioned a novel that I hesitate to bring up again, but I can't help myself. So you did mention Normal People, which I think has almost no redeeming features. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it's... I don't know, it's such a hyped, hyped novel. And so then every time I read something that, that I think is so much more layered and just beautifully written or wonderfully written or touching or affecting or, you know, has any sort of impact whatsoever and is really thoughtful, then I think if only people were reading this and not normal people. Anyways, I think it's, so far, the most overrated novel of, of the century, but we won't go there. That's not, you know, I know you, you did not bring that up for me to go off on a rant, so I will spare you the rest of my rant now. Uh, the other, so you're happy to, to know that I did finish Crime and Punishment uh, last week. I won't go into detail. I, I don't feel that I... And you know, have the authority really to talk much about Dostoevsky, but it is the first Dostoevsky I've read, and as I mentioned before, I am not well read in Russian literature, so uh, yeah, it was quite a treat, quite the page turner, and yeah, just just absolutely wonderful, um, yeah, psychological thriller really, and also dealing with these themes of conscience and struggling with conscience, which I, which as you know by now very well, I love to do and to read about. So one kind of funny note that I made that I wanted to share with you is that this is one of the few books that I haven't written in or drawn all over or made any marks in. I only just, you know, kind of folded the corner of one page, which is uh, this this page where this character, and I'm so botching pronunciations, I'm not even going to try, but, you know, there's this this character where uh, Raskolnikov, our main character, his sister was working, and um, the couple that she lived with, the, there's a, so a, there's a yeah a husband and a wife, the uh, well okay I won't go into too much detail. Anyways, the guy presumably killed his wife, right? And she had kind of really um, slandered the Roskonikov sister and then took it back and kind of, you know, restored her honor or whatnot. But they had this whole, it's like this whole side plot that's happening. And excuse me for botching that up a bit. But yeah, it's basically a secondary plot within the whole novel. But there is this page, which is about um, Marta Petrova, so the wife who was presumably killed by this this husband and the young the young woman who was working there, so Raskolnikov's sister, and he's ta- ta- telling Raskolnikov that, I need to find it real quick, it's just very, anyways, he says, my explanation is that Marfa Petrovna was an ardent and impressionable woman, and simply fell in love herself, literally fell in love with your sister, well, little wonder, look at Avdotya Romanovna, anyways, it goes on, and he goes on to praise this woman, who he was presumably in love with as well, but I thought, my God, there's a lesbian love affair and crime and punishment. Nobody told me this. I mean, it's, you know, it exists in one, 
one might argue two sentences eight tenths the way through the novel but still so I went online and I was looking I thought there must be some fanfic about these two but no so I'm gonna have to write that fanfic I fear I'll let you know how I get on with it but isn't that yeah (laughs) anyways it also just made me feel really gay I listened to the interview with David White whose poetry I had not been, who I, I wasn't familiar with at all. So yeah, that it's, I'm really glad you sent me that link and that now I know who he is. Oh my gosh, the whole, well, that probably that whole podcast. I mean, the whole idea of loneliness, you know, being alone, being lonely is, yeah, worthy of its own podcast for sure. One thing that David White said, he mentioned the idea of, of a state of exile being a foundation for understanding yourself as in being unanchored and unbelonging. And, you know, I think there's so many ways we can speak of exile and also even this idea of of being unanchored and unbelonging. Probably both of us have felt this a lot in our lives. I've always felt kind of in a state of permanent exile, and it's not something I say with resentment, actually. Um, at the same time, I think it's interesting to really try and, yeah, delve into oneself. One thing David White talks about is just kind of this, this idea of, you know, communication with, with the outside world and different forms of communication and and learning to yeah be in a space and be aware of it and and I think that communication includes yourself right hearing yourself so yeah I've been and I've been doing a lot well I've been spending a lot of time with myself that's for sure right (laughs) um I think it's different for well, this is it's such an, a unique experience, this whole quarantine experience, right? And it's so different for everyone, depending on if you're home with a with a partner or a flatmate or kids or whatnot. But, you know, I am at home with a dog and two cats. And I I feel like I'm, yeah, I'm thinking a lot and I'm trying to kind of sit in this space and not keep myself incredibly busy all the time. But it's also kind of this focusing in and then pulling out and then focusing in and pulling out and really just trying to to hey maybe f- figure out my emotions and my how, why I react to certain things by paying attention to my emotions and how I react to certain things which is not something I've paid attention to to this degree in the past so when you ask how my memories are treating me that's that's a big question and my first reaction to this question was to say that they're pretty ruthless. Um, you know, I've been I've been dredging up a lot of memories lately, really just trying to remember. I mean, I have a notebook. Where I just write down all these things that come to mind, and I think, okay, you know, this age, you were here. What do you do? What do you remember? And I just try and you know pour stuff out. But it's interesting because once you start doing that, then things do come up, even when you're not thinking about it. Right? It's like you've activated some part of your mind to to keep. It's kind of working in the background to keep dredging this stuff up. And when I think about what I might have been thinking or feeling at different times in my life, I've I've kind of come to the conclusion that I didn't let myself feel a whole lot, which means I must have been 
numbing myself. That, that's what I kind of feel and see when I look from from the outside and and it's like I can't even get in so that means I think you know I see myself as a in this shell in this shell and I've just numbed myself now I know that can't be completely true but that's that's where I am right now when I look at kind of young Amy. To end on a lighter note, the other night I couldn't go to sleep and I had this memory. I mean, it just popped into my head. I haven't thought of this for decades. But all of a sudden I remembered this TV show called Aaron's Way, which is about this Amish family. And then I looked it up online. It came out in 1988, which is about the time that... Um, these Amish families moved in and bought up these farms near the village where I was living with my grandma at the time. So I was completely fascinated by the, by Amish people and probably in a very objectifying way. But, you know, all of a sudden they were part of our lives and then there was this TV show. So, yeah, it was only on for one season. I don't know. I really wonder if anybody... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure some people must remember it, of course, right? Actually, it has pretty good ratings on IMDb. But I, I tried, I remember that it was about Amish people, and the only thing I remembered other than that really was the 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 daughter and the Amish family who was a teenager. Um, I was completely fixated on her. And then I looked it up, and she was played by Samantha Mathis, whose name I recognized from later films and stuff. But, you know, I, I wasn't even... I wasn't even aware of her then later in life. I think it was just this little phase of her and Aaron's way, you know. Um, and I was completely fixated, and there was this this young neighbor, the young handsome guy who I think, what I remember, I should go back and watch this. Maybe it's nothing like this. I don't know. But that, that you know, there was all this tension that something was going to happen between them and they were going to hook up, and I just remember thinking, no, 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 this this can't happen. This guy is not, you know, he's not good enough for Samantha Mathis's character, and <laughs> anyway, it you know what what a thing to remember it, it, like one night when you're trying to fall asleep, so yeah, there's that, okay, I think that should be enough for today. Oh my gosh, this has been a long letter, Sylvia. Forgive me for going on and on and on. I go on a lot. Maybe I maybe I should be sending you two letters a week or something. I don't know. Or I just need to learn to shut up. It's one or the other, right? Okay. I look forward to hearing back from you and take care and keep yourself surrounded by good people. And I love you. Goodbye.